The LinkedIn Podcast Network is sponsored by TIAA. TIAA makes you a retirement promise, a promise of a guaranteed retirement paycheck for life. Learn more at TIAA.org backslash promises pay off. I'm Rufus Griskin, and this is The Next Big Idea. Today, number 13 in our countdown of last year's most popular book bites, the most important, potentially life-changing books of the year. Number 13 is High Conflict by Amanda Ripley. What do a gang leader in Chicago, an environmental activist in England, and an astronaut floating in space all have in common? They've all experienced high conflict, the kind of disagreement that starts small but quickly becomes all-consuming. But they also know how to get out of it, not by avoiding friction, but by finding ways to fight with dignity, smarts, and humility. In her new book, High Conflict, Why We Get Trapped and How We Get Out, journalist Amanda Ripley tells us how it is that we get stuck in high conflict situations and what we can do to break free. Here's Amanda. Hi. My name is Amanda Ripley, and I'm a journalist who has spent 20 years investigating human behavior for Time Magazine, The Atlantic, and other places. I'm going to share with you five of the big ideas from my newest book, High Conflict, Why We Get Trapped and How We Get Out. Big idea number one, high conflict is the invisible hand of our time. Four years ago, I went on a quest to try to understand how people get out of really ugly conflicts personal, political, all kinds of conflict. Because it just felt like we were stuck as a country in conflicts that weren't going anywhere interesting on social media and politics and the news. But I found out that I was asking the wrong question. It's not about getting out of conflict. It's about getting out of high conflict. I ended up following people who were trapped in all kinds of disputes. A politician in California, a former gang leader in Chicago, an environmental activist in England, regular frustrated Democrats in New York City, regular frustrated Republicans in Michigan. I even talked to astronauts because it turns out there's conflict in outer space, too, on every mission. You can't avoid conflict. But I learned that there are actually two important kinds of conflict. High conflict is the kind we're seeing a lot of today. It's the kind of conflict that takes on a life of its own. High conflict can start small, but it becomes all-consuming. The original facts fade into the background, and the us-versus-them dynamic takes over. The conflict becomes its own reality, and our brains behave differently. High conflict is invisible, but like gravity, it exerts a pull on everything else. And anything you do to try to end high conflict usually makes it worse. These people I followed were, at some point, trapped in high conflict. And they aren't anymore. And they didn't give up. They didn't change their minds. They're still fighting for what's right. They're just much better at it and much less miserable because they created what I came to know as good conflict. Good conflict can be heated and stressful, but actually goes somewhere worth going. It's a way of fighting smart, of fighting with dignity, with curiosity. Decades of research has shown that the problem with conflict is not the friction. That's actually really important. That makes us better as a society, as a family. The problem is high conflict, the kind that paralyzes us, that blinds us to opportunities, 
and eventually makes us act against the causes we care most about without even realizing it. Big idea number two. Humiliation is the nuclear bomb of the emotions. So what causes high conflict? Why do some conflicts stay manageable and others implode? It turns out there are four specific conditions that tend to lead to high conflict. These are the things to watch out for, to avoid at all costs in your personal and professional life if you want to stay in good conflict. I describe all four of these conditions in the book, but one example is humiliation. Humiliation is the most powerful, underappreciated force in politics, international relations, gang violence, homeowner association disputes. Every intense conflict I've looked at, humiliation was present. It's the nuclear bomb of the emotions, as the psychologist Evelyn Lindner puts it. Here's one example about two powerful men you've probably heard of who had a falling out. The history books say their conflict was over ideology, differences about the role of the federal government. But I'm not convinced that's the whole story. John Adams and Thomas Jefferson met as delegates to the Continental Congress, the body governing America's 13 colonies. Adams was short and sarcastic. He talked a lot, lost his temper easily. Jefferson was tall and elegant. He was diplomatic, reluctant to offend. And yet, the two men became fast friends. Adams saw the younger Jefferson as a sort of protege. He persuaded him to draft the Declaration of Independence, which both men signed. They often disagreed about policy, but they did it with warmth and respect. Then, in 1796, one political party backed Jefferson for president, while the other got behind Adams. The campaign got ugly. Adams won, as expected, but Jefferson came uncomfortably close to beating him. To Adams, this public challenge from his protege, no less, felt like a humiliation. Researchers have found that feelings of rejection and humiliation activate the same parts of the brain as physical pain, which is why they're often called social pain. And social pain usually causes people to withdraw and become aggressive in response which then fuels high conflict. After the election, Jefferson felt uneasy. He drafted a letter to Adams to smooth things over, emphasizing his continued friendship, loyalty, and respect. It was a good idea. But another person told him not to send the letter. This is what happens in a lot of conflicts. Third parties, sometimes known as conflict entrepreneurs, can make things worse. In this case, the other person was James Madison, and he was worried the letter might get leaked somehow, and Jefferson's supporters might not like its conciliatory tone. So Jefferson never sent the letter, which is a pity. In 1800, Jefferson ran for president again. The campaign was even nastier. Both sides spread rumors and demeaned their opponents. Jefferson hired someone to badmouth Adams in the press, and ultimately, he won the election. On Jefferson's inauguration day, Adams, his mentor, his old friend, left Washington in a stagecoach at four in the morning. He became the first American president not to welcome his successor. For the sake of the brand new country, there was a lot they should have discussed, alliances they could have made, but that's not what happened, because this was high conflict fueled by humiliation. Adams and Jefferson did not speak again for 11 years. Big idea number three. 
Beware the binary. Gary Friedman is a world-renowned conflict expert who has helped thousands of clients through all manner of disputes, from custody battles to labor strikes. He's written three books on conflict and taught courses at Harvard and Stanford. In 2015, his neighbors urged him to run for local office in his tiny town in Northern California, figuring he was the perfect person to help fix politics, to heal the nasty tone that had crept into the town meetings. It made so much sense. Well, it took about 10 minutes before Gary got sucked into high conflict, as he himself now admits. Despite everything he knew, he got fixated on winning, blaming his opponents, doing things he'd trained thousands of other people not to do. He couldn't sleep. He kept having imaginary conversations with his enemies in his head. Like everyone caught in high conflict, he started unintentionally mimicking the behavior of his adversaries. He'd gotten into politics to make it more inclusive, less toxic, and he gradually made it less inclusive, more toxic. He lost two years of his life and peace of mind fighting over things that really didn't matter that much in the grand scheme of things. It's a fascinating story, but the most surprising thing is what happened next. Two years into his term, realizing he'd gotten trapped in high conflict, Gary changed his political strategy totally, on purpose. He did several key things, but one was to recategorize his opponents. He'd been thinking of himself and his allies as one side, the new guard, he called them, the upstarts, and the others were, well, the old guard, the status quo. But the human brain does not do well with just two categories, according to many years of research. Democrats and Republicans, white and black, good and evil, us and them, tend to bring out our worst conflict instincts. And these binary categories very rarely reflect reality. The people Gary called the old guard did not think of themselves as the status quo. They didn't even see themselves as aligned, necessarily. So Gary began to look for these differences on purpose and to mix up the categories in his head and out loud. Some days he voted with one member of the old guard, other days he voted his own way. This surprised everyone a little bit, which is a great way to interrupt high conflict. He also tried to rehumanize people one-on-one. Outside of the official meetings, he'd stopped to talk to the neighbor who liked to garden, asking about her roses. He wasn't trying to manipulate her. He really liked gardening. He was trying to know her, to remind his brain she was a three-dimensional human beyond her category. That was three years ago. Eventually, Gary did help to fix politics in his town. He kept fighting for what he believed in, but he didn't lose any more sleep to the conflict. And he got much more done. It's a microcosm of what politics could look like if there were more than two political parties, more than two sides in a news story, more options than yes or no. I've seen this pattern again and again, and the lesson is refreshingly straightforward. If you want to stay out of high conflict in your school or your company or your country, create more than two groups and keep them fluid. Scramble them up every so often. Want to open a branch office? Rotate your employees in and out on a regular basis. Want to be a great school principal? Teach a class yourself, just like the teachers do. Take a class, too, just like the students. Don't let the group stagnate and take on outsized importance. 
Big idea number four, investigate the understory. Since the age of 16, Andy Nichols has gotten arrested more than 20 times. As a notorious soccer hooligan, he's been banned from every soccer stadium in England and Wales. Curiously, in his memoir, there's almost nothing in nearly 400 pages about the game of soccer. There are no odes to the genius of Everton, his home team, or rants about a particularly hapless coach or defensive lineup. That's because soccer hooliganism is not actually about soccer. Like other dysfunctional conflicts, it stopped being about its stated purpose a long time ago. Every high conflict has an understory, the thing it's really about, which almost never gets discussed. Usually, the understory has something to do with fear, humiliation, or a need to belong. That's absolutely the case with soccer hooligans and with America's political conflict. But think about it. How often do journalists, politicians, or even most voters talk about fear, humiliation, or a need to belong? Until that understory gets investigated, high conflict tends to just rage on like an uncontrolled wildfire. Every divorce mediator has a story like this. In one case, a set of Legos practically brought a divorce proceeding to a standstill. The husband wanted the Legos. The wife wanted the Legos. They were paying their lawyers in one hour enough to buy all the Legos. It didn't matter. Because the Legos were not just Legos. They were their child's most precious toys. Where the Legos went, so went the child's affection. To get out of high conflict, you have to investigate the understory. What is the root cause? That is the question Curtis Toller, a former gang leader in my book, asks young men on the streets of Chicago now. Often, the people in high conflict don't really know the answer at first. No one has asked. Help them get curious about that. What does QAnon or the COVID vaccine or the Legos really mean to them underneath their talking points? Then you might get somewhere interesting. Big idea number five. Be on the lookout for saturation points. The great weakness of high conflict is that it makes the people involved kind of miserable. Most of us want it to stop on some level, but we can't figure out how. This misery creates saturation points, a moment in a conflict where the losses outweigh the gains. Sort of like hitting bottom for an alcoholic. And a saturation point can be a golden opportunity to interrupt high conflict, to turn it upside down. With a couple in a bitter custody dispute, a saturation point might happen if a child gets sick all of a sudden. The priorities can realign. Identities can shift. With gang members, it might happen in the hospital after someone's been shot, especially if none of the other gang members come to visit. In politics, it can happen after a loss or a riot. This happens in war, too. In Colombia's long-running civil war, 52,000 people left the armed conflict voluntarily through the government's reintegration programs. What caused them to leave when they did? They reached their saturation points. Sometimes it was when their side experienced major casualties. Sometimes it was when their side ran low on money. It also happened, according to fascinating new research by Juan Pablo Aparicio, when the government ran ads during big sporting events, inviting rebel fighters to come home and watch the game with their families. In other words, people on the outside of a high conflict matter. Those of us who are not calling each other names on Facebook, who are not conflict entrepreneurs, 
Whenever an opportunity arises, we can help people realize they have reached a saturation point and invite them to come home. In 1809, a friend of both John Adams and Thomas Jefferson began to quietly scheme to get them to start speaking again. Ever so gently over the course of years, Benjamin Rush, a fellow signer of the Declaration of Independence, kept telling each man that the other was eager to reconnect. He even told Adams that he'd had a dream in which the two friends were reunited after Adams wrote to Jefferson. Was Rush telling the truth? We don't know. But here's the thing. It worked. On New Year's Day in 1812, Adams wrote a letter to Jefferson, just like in the dream. And Jefferson wrote back. For the next 14 years, the two men exchanged 158 letters. You and I ought not to die before we have explained ourselves to each other, Adams wrote. This is an example of a conflict interrupter, the opposite of a conflict entrepreneur. These people exist in every zip code, every time zone, and they can wield enormous power. Because of Benjamin Rush, Adams and Jefferson remained in touch until they both died on the same day as it happened, July 4th, 1826. Thank you for listening. For more, check out my new book, High Conflict, Why We Get Trapped and How We Get Out. Thank you, Amanda. I am ready to commit myself to becoming my zip code's designated conflict interrupter. If you want to learn more about Amanda's book, I highly recommend the conversation she had about it on this podcast with our curator, Susan Kane. You can find it by scrolling back through this feed or by following the link in the episode notes. Amanda also created a beautiful audio and video e-course based on the book, which is only available in the Next Big Idea app. So if you haven't downloaded the app yet, what are you waiting for? Search for Next Big Idea in your app store or follow the link in the episode notes. In our app, you'll also find hundreds of other book bites. With book bites, you can read a book in the time it takes to shave a mustache. On our next episode, A New Theory of Consciousness, I'm Rufus Griscom. See you tomorrow.